Welcome to another episode of our NP Clinical Series podcast, where we discuss all things NP Clinical practice and offer some pearls of wisdom along the way. Let's jump right into the conversation. Hi, I'm Jana A. Neal, and I'll be your host today. And joining me is Dr. Vanessa Pomerico. Thank you for joining us today, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about one of my greatest passions in practice. I'm excited about this too. Before we get started, can you just tell our guests, not myself because I know you, but our guests just a little bit about yourself and your practice setting. So I am a family nurse practitioner with Northeast Medical Group and I'm in Connecticut. We have offices in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New York. Um, I have a very large LGBTQIA plus practice, and I'm also the lead clinician for diversity, equity, and inclusion for Northeast Medical Group. And I'm faculty for Fitzgerald Health Education Associates, and I also teach at Quinnipiac University here in Connecticut. So not busy at all. You're doing no. nothing. <laughs> Fantastic. So before we actually get into this topic, I have to tell you a story because it leads right, right. into it. So true story. I... Um, having this weird, like cardiac thing, not a crazy cardiac thing, but like just noticing that my heart rate is like reacting to all the things. And I know that it's, I know in my, in my own brain, it's just anxiety. Right. And the minute that I go outside, my husband's very good about this. Tell him I'm going to go outside in the backyard. The minute that I do, and I start messing around with our flowers or even just sitting in the sun or walking around with a dog, nothing crazy. I come back and I'm like Zen master and I'm totally fine. And so I thought like, oh, well, I just found the secret to health. All you have to do is just go outside. Nobody knows this, but I'd actually then like, it was just weeks later, I'd saw an article, a news article, and I would think it was somewhere in Canada and they were talking about nature-based wellness and these interventions that prescribers, you know, practitioners and clinicians were actually giving to their patients. And it was a great aha moment for me. Like, this is a real thing. I'm not just making it up because I like to be in the sun. So I'm so, so curious about this topic and really interested in it and wondering if you can start us off by just framing up what is that? In my mind, it's go outside and feel good. But what really is that? What is nature-based wellness? So you're really not far off the mark. It's not simply just saying go outside and exercise. Um, It really is promoting nature-based wellness and nature-based interventions, terms that are used interchangeably. Um, There's a wide spectrum of how we interpret this. So really when we look at nature-based interventions, um, we're really promoting structured therapeutic interventions in what we call blue and green environments. And these are um, really requires active and consistent involvement in what we call a meaningful activities that are led by trained professionals, people who have gone on for specific certifications and they've learned um, how to have measurable outcomes um, and how to promote these activities. It's a it's a prescription for health and it's recommended by people in social services, people in health, you know, all kinds of healthcare providers can do this. Um, and it really benefits what would they say a particular population as part of a public health initiative. But I have to tell you, COVID changed a lot of, of oh, how yeah. people think in terms of nature-based wellness. And so exactly what you did, you went out and you started to feel better just kind of communing with nature, even if it meant playing around in your garden a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so it could be something as simple as planting flowers or tending to your garden 
or it can be the, the, the extreme opposite of it, where there's actually a structured environment led by somebody who's a trained professional. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that I always like to bring up about this is that um, the earliest manifestation of nature-based therapies was decades ago in highly urbanized Japan. And the government actually had introduced a national health program, and I'm, I'm not probably not going to say this right, but it's called Shinrin-yoku, which means forest bathing. And what it is, is immersing yourself using all five senses in the natural world. And Japan today has over 60 government certified forest bathing sites. So what does wow. that tell you? Yeah. Wow. When did, you know, I'm curious, when did you first kind of, when did nature-based wellness and interventions hit the scene for you in your own practice? So when thinking about like in the NP world, when did that happen for you that you started to recognize that maybe more and implement it more. So I, I want to just give you a little background. Um, yeah. I was a group fitness instructor for many years. So fitness okay. has been a part of my, um, my, my genetic makeup, if you will. I started <laughs> exercising in high school. Um, I used to teach uh, exercise classes. I actually had my own small aerobic studio for a lot of years. And I was a personal trainer, but I was also one of the very first cycle instructors in the country. Wow. Yeah. And so I used to be part of a traveling fitness team. It was actually uh, a Reebok, which I'm not part of them anymore, but Reebok had a master's team and we would, I would speak at different conferences. And, and so I've always had exercise as part of my own day-to-day -day thing. Um, and it's actually what helped me get through nursing school that I was able to teach classes and still be able to go to nursing school. Um, obviously when I became a nurse practitioner, my life changed drastically and I was having a real hard time balancing, um, teaching, or, you know, my fitness classes and then, yeah. you know, working and rounding at the hospital and that kind of thing. And I ended up leaving the fitness industry, but I carried with that all of my experience um, and my expertise to my patients. So I've always talked to my patients. It's just part of what I do in terms of asking them about smoking and their diets. I ask them about exercise and I always ask them if they say, no, I don't exercise. I try to encourage them and ask them, you know, what's, what are some of the barriers that keep you from exercising? And then the pandemic again, really changed for me for somebody who is a very forward facing person. I'm used to seeing patients every day, having my hands on patients every day. And for three months, I was sitting tethered to a computer for 10 or 12 hours a day doing telehealth. Mm -hmm. um, I needed to do something because I found myself just staying in my house. And I noticed for the first time that people in my neighborhood, there were droves and droves of people that were starting to walk around, families, people walking with their dogs, um, and people like talking to one another. And so I started seeing more of a benefit with that. And I know for myself, just to get out of the house after sitting in front of a computer for so long, like you, I felt that kind of euphoria just being outside, listening. I don't put headphones in. Um, I don't wear earbuds. I like to just hear the sounds of nature when I'm outside, you know, walking or, or exercising or doing any of that. So that, I have to say the last couple of years is really what drove me um, to do more about it and learn more about it. But then one of our, um, our wellness director for our health system was talking about one of the physicians at one of our sister's practices who was doing more wellness and he was looking for other people. And I immediately reached out to him and we were able to have a conversation and really talk more about how we want this to be more, um, more of an implementation yeah. within our health system. 
And he's actually certified by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. They actually have a certification program. So this is something that our health system embraces. Um, we also have a um, an affiliation. We're one of the stakeholders with Yale University and with the Department of Public Health for the New Haven area that actually have a New Haven wellness initiative. And I found out that they have these initiatives all over the country. That's awesome. So yeah, thank you. that is really awesome because I don't hear enough about it. And I got to tell you, this is really my next question for you. You know, in a non-sophisticated way, I feel like nature affects our well-being because we feel better. Like I feel better when I'm outside. Whatever angst I have is gone. I'm immediately distracted by, to your point, all the wonderful things around me. And, and that's it. But like truly, how does nature really affect our well-being? Like what's the research tell us? So there's a lot of studies that actually support the positive effect of nature and exercise on health and well-being. Um, we know that there is strong evidence that there's that protective association with recreational physical activity in terms of development of different types of cancers and that kind of thing. So we know that the, the research is out there. We've been saying it for years that exercise will help, um, you know, defer the development of certain types of cancers. We know that exercise increases the body's natural morphine. We get those endorphins kicking in. And I know for myself that on, I give myself two rest days a week. On those days, I, I feel a little, a little off when I'm not exercising. I know that I need to rest, but I think I've become so reliant on having that high level of endorphins um, that I I really do feel like exercise is, is somewhat addicting to people, not in a bad way, but in a good way. Um, and so we know that that our, our research has shown that it, it helps to decrease blood pressure for people who are diabetic. It helps to decrease uh, their blood, their blood glucose. We know that people who have um, significant mental health issues, we know that the studies are out there that some of the nature-based health interventions that we're going to talk about in just a minute um, especially the ones that are in those specific programs, that it has a positive effect on some mental health issues. Um, people who have had strokes, we know that getting involved with nature-based wellness um, for people like especially with strokes, that they get involved with something small, but it will help with their dexterity. It helps to get them moving. It helps to get their minds starting to work again. It might be something as simple as planting seeds and, and growing something from a seedling and, and planting that outdoors. Um, but it's enough for somebody who's had a stroke and maybe limited in their mobility or even in terms of their cognitive abilities that they can do something that they can see an outcome with it. So there, again, there's that whole spectrum on different types of programs, different types of interventions. But we know that the bottom line is no matter how small or how large the intervention is, we know that there's that positive effect on our health and well-being. And what are some of those interventions? I'm curious, right? Because what does that look like? And is it for everybody? You know, is it for everybody to walk outside and engage in exercise or to do a task? What does that look like? So there's, there's again, a whole different spectrum of things. There's lots of different things. So one of them is care farming. I don't know if you've ever heard of care farming before, but what it is, is it's combined work on a farm and it allows somebody to have that contact with both nature and with animals. Um, there's something that's called wilderness therapy. Um, this is a mental health type of therapy, and it's a strategy that they use for a lot of ad adolescents that have maladaptive behaviors. 
it's really more considered a purposeful therapy in, in what we call a natural environment. And it helps with that introspective behavior to help facilitate some changes. So you might've heard people that have done um, pilgrimage. Um, they have them in Spain. One of them is called the, uh, the St. James Walk. I know somebody that recently did that. And what they do is it's time for reflection. It's time, uh, some people will do it by themselves. They'll do it in a group. But it combines, um, for other people, combines therapy with certain challenges and experiences in the outdoors to help promote their adaptability, their flexibility, and their endurance. Um, there's other things like forestry programs. Those are courses that are done in conjunction with uh, rangeland management, um, water issues. They could have wildlife biology. Um, there's adventure therapy. Adventure therapy is something that actually was a psychotherapy that started in the 1960s. And it was a form of what they called experiential therapy, using these challenging adventures that helped um, heal people from you know, different types of trauma or different types of addictions. Um, then there's something that's called goal-directed therapy with farm therapy. It's farm therapy or animal-assisted therapy. So for example, somebody with really high levels of anxiety, they could do this farm therapy, this animal-assisted therapy. Um, and it helps them a little bit different than the care of farming, where they go in and they actually have a therapist working with them on trust issues. Um, and we all know that animals have a tendency to kind of, you know, relax us and bring our blood pressure down. But they're finding a lot of benefit in people who um, who have this, this really severe types of anxiety. I, I will share with you, and I have permission to share this, I have a, a small cousin who's about eight years old. And this poor kid has had paralyzing anxiety for the past several years. And her mom is a nurse. And we talked about, you know, she said, what do you think about this animal therapy? I said, listen, anything that's going to help, why not try it? Yeah. And it has made such a profound difference on this, this, my sweet little Charlotte, she's eight years old, oh. um, that, that she, it has made such a profound difference on the fact that she has a purpose now. And um, they do all kinds of fundraisers. Like, this kid remembered to when they were shoeing the horses, she would take the, the the shoes that they were taking off the horse. She would clean them up, decorate them. She sells them and then puts the money back into the farm. Oh, I mean, this wow. was a kid that two years ago didn't even want to go to school and be with people. And now this has become something that she's made friends. And there's more kids that are also in this um, farm therapy. And then we have other types of nature-based interventions, things like green gyms. I don't know if you've heard of those. A lot of them came out um, during the pandemic when we couldn't be indoors. So what these fitness enthusiasts did was they took their programs outdoors and they would still do their Pilates classes or yoga, Tai Chi, and they would all be outside. They've been doing Tai Chi outside for years, but other programs decided that there was some benefit into doing that. And then, you know, other types of interventions that don't involve exercise are things like nature arts and crafts. So you might've heard things like the rock project. So the rock project are people that paint rocks and they leave them, they put little messages on them and they leave them in different areas. Um, and you either take a rock or leave a rock, but sometimes the messages, somebody will walk by and they'll read that message and it may be what they need to hear that day. That is so fascinating. And really there's a piece of me that's, that's thinking like, for lack of a better word, duh. Like, why haven't we been outside doing these things forever? To your point, right. we always knew that was a good thing to do and a healthy thing to do. But yeah, you're right. COVID happened, the pandemic happened. And like, we went from facing this way to facing that way. And it was like, we rediscovered outside. And that's pretty, pretty crazy. 
And there's something to be said about just being outside and disconnecting. We have become a society of our heads down. Yeah. We're on our phones. We're on our laptops. We're in front of a screen, you know, in yet another meeting. Um, And so being able to disconnect as much as we love technology and let's face it, as a society, we can't function without all of our technology. It's really nice to be able to walk away from it and just go outside and listen. So for a lot of people that maybe they don't have, you know, a lot of things around them, it's just a matter, even if they just go out and plunk themselves in the backyard, or if they don't have a backyard, go find a park and don't sit on a park bench and, you know, text somebody, put the phone away and just be present in the moment. Yeah. Now, these things, these interventions to me sound like prescriptions in a way. And so how would clinicians and providers, how do they implement this? And, and do you literally prescribe, I need you to exercise three days a week and this is your prescription and you need to do that. How does that happen? So you really do. Um, you know, when I talk to my patients about it, I really have to find out where they feel the most comfortable. You know, do they even like to be outside, you know, and what do they like to do when they're outside? Um, and how much time do they have to spend outdoors? You know, you might find somebody that says, I am not a nature person. I don't like bugs. You know, I like myself, I am not a camper. Don't ask me to go camping. I, I, I mean, that's just pushing me beyond my limits. I can't sleep outside. I'd be too terrified. Um, but to be outside, you know, in a green space or a blue space is entirely different. So again, assessing where our patients really feel the most comfortable um, what and finding out what do they like to do outside and how much time do they have to spend outdoors? Because if they say, I literally have 30 minutes where I don't have to be, or I have less than an hour, I'm not going to say to them, you know, you need to go hiking for two hours. So we need to make it very realistic, very measurable goals. And like any other exercise program, you know, ask them about their frequency, their duration, the place, and the type of activity that they need. And this is true of any type of exercise. You know, I, you know, if the patient says, I exercise less than one time a week, and I'll say, listen, you have high blood pressure, you have high cholesterol, you know, now your, your um, blood sugars are starting to get into the pre-diabetic range. You know, I really need you to think about X, Y, and Z. And one of the things I want to think about is you need to think about exercising more than one time a week. So what is realistic for you? If somebody can't find, you know, 90 minutes in the course of a week, three 30-minute sessions to do something for themselves or something very wrong with their schedule. And they need to find something because it's self-care. And then once we figure out what we can do, then I can think about sending reminders to the patient. Um, You know, how often am I going to check in with the patient? And and having the patient portal on, on any of the electronic health systems is really helpful because it's quick. I could just send it off. The patient doesn't have to pay a copay. But we need to come up with what's achievable, what's reasonable, and really customizing it to every single one of our patients because it's not a one size fits all, right? Yeah. So we can think about, you know, can they use activity tractor trackers? Can they do something that's on their cell phone? Um, they can do YouTube videos, which many of them are free. Um, they might even hire a trainer. There's a lot of people that during the pandemic, they pivoted and they started doing um, Zoom classes um, or doing uh, videos that they're, you know, can, people can subscribe to the channel and they're able to get fitness at home in a much easier way. We even have other things like bike share programs. You know, you've, you've seen those bikes oh, that yeah. you can 
pick it up in one town and drop it off in another town. And, you know, I don't know, it's like a dollar or something. Um, or they can do something as simple as finding a local park and just being able to find what they can do there. And once we we have figured out what's going to be specific, there's actually an acronym. It's called uh, SMART, and it stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Realistic, and Time-Specific. Um, and it's really using that acronym to come up with a realistic program for somebody. And, and if somebody says, I really don't have a lot of time, some of my healthcare providers who are patients of mine, I'll say, Instead of, um, you know, take some time at lunch, not to call patients, go walk the stairs in your building. And I myself will do that on a day when, you know, it might be raining and I can't get out and walk in the neighborhood. I'll actually walk. We have three floors and I walk the the three different um, floors going, walking up the stairs. And I probably do that five or six times um, just to get some movement in there. So we can always find a way to prescribe fitness for our patients. So that's great. That's great. Now, how do we measure that to be successful then? You know, like to say that you prescribe that to a patient and for X, Y, Z, you actually gave a really good patient profile. So I I feel like in my mind, right in my nurse brain, I can think that diabetes, I think of high blood pressure and these types of things. And it's a very clear connection that exercise definitely should be part of whatever your treatment plan is and is, you know, happening. But we know it's not always for those type of physiological, you know, issues or diseases that happen. So I guess it's two part, really, you know, who is it for? Is it for everybody, these interventions? And how do we measure? How do you measure that to say that this has been a successful thing? And I think that I'm thinking about, especially if you're taking medications, especially if you have other interventions that you're doing, how do we measure that this was something that led to success for that patient? So it really is for everybody. Um, What I tell my patient who has two bad knees and is riddled with arthritis to say, I want you to walk your building and go up and down the stairs, not realistic. But I can say to the patient, you have a park right inside of your complex. I want you to walk around that park, depending on how big it is, for at least 10 minutes a day. I don't think that 10 minutes is a lot. It get, you know, as long as the weather is, is yeah. uh, you know, achievable. And, and once they get out, and I always tell them this, once you get a taste of those endorphins, and you know, remember, endorphins are the body's natural morphine. So what does morphine do? It's a painkiller, right? Yeah. So when our patients get that natural morphine you know, or natural endorphins into their body, they go, you know what? My knees don't hurt as much. Or I woke up and my back didn't hurt as much. It's like that aha moment for them. So then they say, well, if I can do 10 minutes, let me do 15 minutes. So I measure the effectiveness, again, depending on how we do it. So if it's something that I'm doing with the patient, I measure the effectiveness by having them come back for their blood pressure checks, monitoring their blood work to see, you know, every three to four months to see how they're doing with their hemoglobin A1C. Um, and again, monitoring their um, their other labs, their lipids and that kind of thing. And then having them come back in the office so I can weigh them, I can go over their blood work with them. I can, you know, talk to them about their blood pressure. Um, but if it's, if it, so it might be something as simple as that. If I have a patient that's in one of those systemically planned, systematically planned programs that they have resourced interventions, those are the ones that because they are funded, they are measurable goals that have already been outlined within each specific intervention and in the planning of these programs. So the certified instructors, the mental health providers, those are going to be the ones that will be measuring the effectiveness as well. So it, it, it all depends on what type of program that the patients um, are going to involve themselves in. 
Um, it is part of a public health initiative. So our Department of Public Health is also involved in maintaining the data on this as well. And again, if I tell my patients, if there's no specific resources within the community, and the thing is there are a lot of resources, people just don't hunt for them. Um, again, find the patient, help the patient find another type of alternative that they might be able to find a park or some other type of place that they can go and exercise. Very good. Now, is there any opportunity, do you think, in, in your opinion, and even in, in your experience, for these type of interventions, these nature-based interventions, even if it's exercise or, or some of the other awesome things you named, to replace what we think of as traditional type of therapy, even if that is medication, or even if that is another form of you know, therapeutic interventions, are there opportunities for this to, to be the answer? So as a nurse, you know that when we do different types of interventions and we're all about data, yeah. um, yes, the answer is yes, sometimes they do. But a lot of that has to do with how committed the patients are to the particular program and whether or not they've really made a concerted effort to make this part of their day-to-day -day life. So are they really committed to it? We know a lot of people, you know, they, they do well for a couple of months and they fall off the exercise wagon or their diet programs, yeah. and then they don't come back and they're lost to follow up. And that's why a nice little, you know, sending a little message through the patient portal, you know, Hey, I noticed that you canceled your last appointment with me, or you haven't checked in with me, just want to see what's going on. And then I tell them, you know, it's okay. If, if you haven't been exercising life happens, I get it, but let's talk about what we can do to get you back on track. Um, if patients demonstrate sustained weight loss, and I always tell them, you know, when they, when they come in, I'm, I'm going to prescribe them a statin, or I'm going to prescribe them a blood pressure medicine, whatever I'm giving them. Their first question is, well, do I have to be on this for the rest of my life? And when can I come off of it? And I always say to them, if you can demonstrate sustained weight loss for at least a year, because after a year, it becomes a habit. And it's not something they're just doing to meet a goal and then say, I don't have to go back to Vanessa anymore. So if they can maintain that sustained weight loss and they have really committed to a regular exercise program, and I can see that their weight has been maintained for the weight loss has been maintained for a year or more. If I can see that their blood pressure is coming down to the point that I can take them off of their blood pressure medication with very close follow-up. And I tell them, you need to have close follow-up with me because you're not going to know if your blood pressure bounces up until you have a headache or you're having chest pain, many patients aren't going to be measuring their blood pressure at home. So I want to make sure that they're adhering to their programs and they're only too happy with that little carrot that I'm dangling in front of them to say, you know, listen, you're going to come back every three months to see me. And if I see, you know, that your weight continues to come down and your blood pressure is coming down, when I start to start peeling those layers of the onion down and say, I'm going to decrease your blood pressure medication and we're going by half, um, or I'm going to decrease your diabetes medication, you know, that's when they start to really get excited about it. And then once they're off of it, they still continue three to six month follow-up with me because I can still bill out for it. Um, because it's not just with, you know, saying that I'm doing, you know, exercise interventions with them, I'm still able to check their blood pressure. So I bill them out for their hypertensive visits or diabetes or whatever their particular um, issues are, then I'm able to then send that to the insurance. And I've not had anybody kick it back to me, say that they won't cover it. Good. That's very good. We're moving yeah. in the right direction then. That makes we me feel better Definitely. That. Yeah. So I got to look at the other side of this. As we speak, speak about this, there's a ton of benefits to right. all of this, but are there any drawbacks? Are there any 
disadvantages to nature-based interventions? So there are, we all know what all the benefits are, but the barriers that I see to a lot of this is especially, you know, working in an inner city, there's a lack of access to what we call blue and green spaces, meaning open bodies of water um, and green spaces, meaning grass, mountains, that kind of thing. Um, lack of resources and equipment. You know, let's face it, I'm not going to tell somebody that they need to go rowing every day or rowing a few times a week um, if they don't have those types of resources. There's um, there's fears and there's stigma that are associated with somebody's personal or physical abilities that maybe they don't want to do that in front of anybody. They don't want to exercise in front of people. They don't want people to see that, you know, they might be a little bit weaker, that they can't keep up. I like to encourage them to say every single one of us has been in that back row of that exercise class and every single one of us has been a beginner. But when you stick to it, you will become that person that's going to cheer somebody else on. Um, so their level of fitness has a lot to do with it. We have to think about um, the expertise of those people and the training of those people who are delivering these types of programs and making sure that they really know what they're doing. Limited finances, not having enough time in the day, the week, or the month to exercise, not having the space either in their own yards or um, space because they live you know, in an apartment complex, you know, they might have family or social obligations, and they might actually have a lot of lack of knowledge um, for safe exercising. So it's not enough for patients to say to me, you know, can you show me some exercise? I can't get down on the floor in my office and say, these are the, this is how you do a crunch, or this is how you do core fitness, because I don't have enough time in the day, even though I have the expertise to do it, you really need somebody that's going to be able to walk, whether that's going to be on a video or somebody that's going to do something out in a blue or a green space, um, you know, that would definitely be something that they would have to do. You know, our patients are always telling us why they can't find time to exercise. So as clinicians, it's really up to us to make them realize that they need to make that time to exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And for any clinicians or NPs, any providers who are listening in now to this and thinking, you know what, this actually applies to me where I work, the patients that I see, it's not the ideal, you know, environment for these blue and green spaces. And I don't really know how to close these gaps to get them the same type of, you know, opportunity that somebody else might have. What are some resources that they could look into or, you know, just recommendations you would have for them? So, you know, um, there's a lot, they don't necessarily have to subscribe to um, a program that the public health department and other stakeholders are providing you know, there's uh, parks. If there's no parks, cemeteries. Now, I know that sounds a little, you know, macabre, um, but I have to tell you, there's a cemetery uh, and I go to visit family members of mine. Um, and it's a beautiful, it actually looks like a park. It has some little small rolling hills in it. It's very peaceful. It's beautiful. And I have to tell you, I think on any given day, there are more people exercising in that cemetery than they are visiting people in the cemetery. Um, so community gardens, you know, community gardens 20 years ago were practically non-existent. I have a hard time finding a town now that I drive through that I don't see community gardens. And again, these exploded when um, when the pandemic started, more people got involved in community gardens. Um, playgrounds, we have playgrounds, just about every city has a, a playgrounds for kids. So there's other places that people can go. There's hiking trails. If there's transportation that might be an issue, again, there's usually some ways that other people can access um, getting into these different types of spaces if they don't have access to nature spaces. 
Yeah. So we can be creative in the way that we think about that and creative in the way that we can support the clients that very good, very good. Vanessa, we've covered so much great information today. (laughs) Is there anything that you want to leave our audience with that we haven't spoken about? So I just want to just make mention um, to people that there are, there's something that's called the, um, the National Environmental Education Foundation. It's called NEF. Um, It's a free website. It provides healthcare professionals, educators, and actually the general public with a lot of different resources. So even if somebody doesn't have access to a computer, they can go to the library and actually access NEF, their website. There's grants that they have. There's engagement guides. They talk about outdoor events in different areas. Um, And they actually have something that's called an online national champion training course. And it's a competency-based, self-paced program um, for healthcare providers and mental health professionals um, in prescribing nature-based health interventions, you know, in in with their particular patients. Um, There's also Exercises Medicine. It's a global health network. They have annual meetings and they actually uh, develop the guidelines with the American College of Sports Medicine on exercise prescriptions. So there's a bunch of handouts in different languages and people can actually access that as well. Um, there's things called Park RX America. Um, there's the Ch- uh, Children and Nature Network. So there's lots of different places that you, once you start hunting, lots of things will, will come up. But there's also the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs um, for people that want more information on that. And then lastly, there are certification programs um, if people want to get involved, again, through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Awesome. Thank you so much for those. That's great. And thank you for this amazing dialogue. As always, I appreciate you joining me today, Vanessa. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you all for tuning in to our NP Clinical Series podcast. We hope you'll join us next time for another discussion. And if you'd like more information about any of these topics discussed today, check out FHEA.com for our course offerings. I'm John Emil, and on behalf of myself and Dr. Vanessa Pomerico, thank you for joining us. Goodbye for now. Bye. For more information about the topics discussed during today's episode, please check out FHEA.com for industry updates and course offerings that will help you advance in your career as an NP.